Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Welcome to episode number 34 of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I am speaking with Naima Ditto, a human rights advocate, development worker, and FGMC survivor. This is the third and final segment of this special series in accordance with International Day of Zero Tolerance for Female Genital Mutilation on the 6th of February. Naima resettled in the US in 1989 through refugee status and she was the first woman in the history of her family to read and write and the first person to go on to college. Her experience has guided her through dedicating two decades of her life to women's empowerment and development work in the US and Africa. I started by asking Naima how she started in the work that she is currently doing today. So I am a woman who spent most of her life in the U.S., but I was born in Kenya, where I spent the first 11 years of my life. So I got to see some of what women experience in those 11 years, but also after moving to the U.S., of course, my culture and our traditions all migrated with us. But I experienced FGMC while I was still in Kenya, so it happened right before we came to the U.S. My parents, knowing that it was illegal here, they were informed of that already that they couldn't do it in the U.S. so it was important that they got it done before they came out here and of course the social pressure and you know this gets under people's skin when I say it but it's an interesting way of showing love but that was their way of protecting me and protecting my future it's of course against human rights and child abuse and all that but still if they didn't know it was that I definitely excuse them and forgive them for it but my story in this work started from me really understanding what had happened to me when I was about 16 years old and uh, doing research on my own and really going through the process of anger, frustration, and just not knowing what to do with the information I had about what happened to me and what the women around me had survived. As a young girl, I didn't have the language to explain and get others to understand me. So it was filled with a lot of anger, frustration. But as I got older and worked in the community a little bit more, I started to find my own way of communicating with folks, which eventually, after college, somehow found myself working with the refugee immigrant community. And my work on FGMC on a professional level started. I was a refugee caseworker for a long time, so it allowed me to ask questions, especially when it came to survivors. The survivor myself, I was able to use my own story and my own experiences to get women to open up about their experiences. So it became part of my work, even though it was not in my job description. And that's how it's always been 
for me. So the other part of it is just doing community service, working in the community, doing volunteer work with women's movements or women's initiatives. So I just became a figure in the community who's always running with issues of the vagina and issues of women and domestic violence. So in many ways, I I made people angry uh, because I was seen as shameless and did not have any tact, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) the the number of women and the number of young girls that I think I was able to help kind of overrides all of that. But the social pressure around it led me to isolate myself and do my work from the mountains, a place where nobody else looks like me. But Mm -hmm. yeah, so it's my lifestyle. It is my calling to work with women. And I don't know what else to do other than this. (laughs) So I mean, you could put me in a sales job selling something on the telephone. And I bet you I'll find a way to bring up women's issues, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So this early experience has really just shaped your career and the woman that you have been today, to which I'm sure if it was different, I mean, you may have found a way to be working uh, in women's issues. However, it's probably been quite instrumental in your growth and development and being able to resonate and connect with women's issues from a different level from, you know, someone who has experienced these types of social pressures and these social norms from a very young age. So I'd really like to hear about, you mentioned that you migrated from your home country to the U.S., at about 11 and it was 16 where you started questioning I guess some of these things that were seen as normal in your community and your family history do you think I guess you would have been alerted to these differences had you not been in the US was it something about growing up with perhaps other communities that don't have these same practices where you're like hang on There's something different here and it's significantly different and I need to dig down on what's happening. Tell us about that. Sure. Living in the freedom that I live in has a huge part of to do with it and also being in a society that is fairly open and I can go to adults outside of my parents, school, teachers, counselors and others and have conversations that are otherwise impossible to have with my parents. But I think at the root of it for me is coming from a household where I was the only girl and I was the eldest of five, I have four brothers. So I had my earliest feminist thoughts, if that's what you would call it, five years old. I remember being five years old, just started nursery school, walking into my friend's house next to a neighbor. And the husband had his feet on her lap. And I just, for some reason, saw that as very disrespectful and thought to myself, I'd never let a boy do that to me. But also the other thing is domestic violence was, you know, all around me girls not allowed to do certain things was all around me. I certainly knew by that time that I had the shorter end of this. Things were not balanced. So, but then of course, I think, you know, growing up in the U.S. made that even stronger. And also I have the ability to speak up and not feel like my life is being threatened or I'm not safe. Yeah. So what did you think about FGMC at the time was it something that you kind of expecting although from a very young age as you said you had these feminist kind of ideas of 
being completely balanced and being fair on all levels of gender. But was it something that you just kind of expected to happen at some point in your girlhood or womanhood or was it sprung on you? Is this spoken about in family before the time? Yeah, it was something I expected. I was quite young the first time I remember just wondering what would be cut. I think right around age five or six. But also at the time, you know, boys were also being circumcised. So I did not necessarily see it as something that was against me. So it was as normal as male circumcision to me at that time because they talk about it on the same level. And when my parents spoke of it, they spoke to all of us equally about it. You know, at that young age, I really didn't understand. And it was when I was a teenager that it hit me. What happened was not normal. What happened was not healthy. In fact, pushed me to the place where I don't agree with male circumcision as well. You can't compare one to the other. But I think as far as harm to a child is concerned, it's the same. And I'm a mother of a boy and a girl. When my son was born, I knew right away that I would not want to inflict that on him. And then... When my daughter was born, I was praying to God that I would have a daughter because living in an American environment, it's easier to like, you don't need to talk about circumcising girls or cutting girls. But with boys, it's so normalized here that actually it reversed on me where I had this fear because of my husband's religious background and my own that I would again be pressured into cutting a son. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very interesting. It's, uh, you many, know, many dynamics. Yeah, the dynamics, exactly. So, when looking back on your experience, what are your thoughts towards the community and family? You mentioned before that you have some perhaps grazing ideas and opinions about families' love, community love, and protection of their daughters. And I'd really like to hear that from your perspective, because I think when people first hear about FGMC, they think it's barbaric and violent. And although it is a violent act, I'd really like to hear more about the cultural belief in terms of the believed benefits to the individual. Yeah, you know, and for me, I think it's all rooted in just mass ignorance where we don't think for ourselves. We just let society decide for us. And it was this is how it's always been done. So that's what we're going to do. Not really valuing our own ability to question and, you know, deliberate within our families. You know, why do we do this? Is this right? What does it affect? What are the impacts? We don't have those conversations. This is a universal thing. You know, it's not just isolated to FGMC practicing communities. So looking at, you know, even Australian culture or American cultures, there's certain things that we do that we don't question. And this is, although it's cruel and, you know, some can call it mutilation, which in some senses it is. I personally identify as being cut because my mom did not intend to mutilate me. So I think conversation is what's missing. And on one hand, some people say it's to protect the honor of the family. And yes, maybe it does that. It achieves the objective of taking a woman's ability to desire sexually away. Her sexual desires are taken away. So then you don't have to worry that your wife is going to have an affair on you or your daughter is going to dishonor you by having sex outside of marriage. But it doesn't always work. And the other thing is also, you know, when a family that lives in some rural community in a village somewhere, they barely have enough to eat and marrying their daughter off, one will bring resources in, but it's one less mouth to feed as well. And if she's not cut, she's not going to be married. 
who am I to judge family who has to make certain decisions for survival? I mean, this for a reason. I mean, this work to end this practice. But then at the same time, change is gradual. I'm not going to expect it to happen overnight. But it's about how we approach it, you know, with compassion, understanding, and a place where we're putting a hand out to folks. We're not standing on one end of the spectrum screaming at them. We're walking towards them so that we can walk back together. I'm lucky to have the information that I have. I'm lucky that the cycle ends with me. But it truly does, for many people, come from a place of love. They want their daughters to be accepted in their communities. And sexual freedom is not something in this cultures, my culture specifically, that is open to girls and women. And for obvious reasons, like you end up pregnant, you're not married yet, you're gonna be stuck. Nobody's going mm. to marry you. I understand that. You know, the societies are not in a place where a girl can go get birth control or family planning when you're in a village. So it's important to just look at the context. Now, if you look at the U.S. or Australia or us in the West, there's no excuse. You have access to information. You can't use culture or tradition as an excuse anymore. So I hold the Westerners to a different standard than I hold people in the village. I think we need to work with the people in the village and get to understand what our values are and do they match up with our actions? Do they match up with the traditions that run in our communities? Giving people the opportunity to just really ask themselves these questions and look at their own lives. But also, when somebody doesn't understand the trauma this causes, it's hard for them to understand it. So in my work, I use that as getting women together, mothers of daughters who could potentially cut their daughters to not even think about their daughters or what lies in the future, but their own trauma. Connecting what they're experiencing, whether it's a skin problem or anxiety or depression, connecting it back to what happened to us as children. We're having marital problems, looking at where it intersects with what happened to us as children. So then when somebody understands the impact it's had on their own life, the likelihood of them not doing it on their own child is very high. That's really interesting and so important to connect that early childhood trauma that sometimes a girl may not remember, they may or may not remember, but how any type of trauma from a young age can then come back when you have your own children or when you become an adult and sometimes that connection isn't always there. So being up to not necessarily go back and have to relive those experiences, but realize the connection of some of the issues and some of the challenges that you have as an adult and how that can be linked back to trauma as a child. And now in your personal perspective, what are the impacts of FGMC specifically, I guess, coming from a place that you migrated to the US and then growing up in the US? It's pretty deep and it's like actually I'm in the space of packing my own childhood trauma and experiencing FGMC is part of that process and gosh the impact mother-daughter relationship I was being held down by five women the sixth sitting in front of me with her weapon in hand and I was screaming for my mom and she did not respond I could hear her Mm -hmm. talking outside 
So that trust that was broken in that moment, I don't know that it will ever be rebuilt. My The little girl in me is still hurt. I've forgiven her, but that little thing that happened between me and my mom, me calling for her, do not come in for me, has impacted my own parenting with my children. I wonder, do I respond to my kids when they call me out? Oh, the part of my heart that it touches, that when I'm called out for not being there or for not responding or for responding in a way that was not healthy for them. For me, it takes me right back to, well, I'm just mirroring what I saw. I'm mimicking the parenting that I saw. Mm -hmm. And then also into adulthood, as I went through puberty, my questions started coming up about this because of all the sex hormones that were in the air in high school. And it's like, okay, why is everybody so excited about this? And I'm just not getting it. So getting into that and asking myself, why am I not getting it? And just really examining the background that I come from. And the more I read about the practice and realizing what it was supposed to do. And in my case, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. And moving forward into becoming a wife and a mother, the intimate relationship with my partner is greatly affected and with really no resources or not many specialists to turn to, not anybody close to us anyway, few people that are specialized in helping women like me are scattered around the world. And there's cost to come with that, of course. So we're left on our own in understanding our own bodies and our needs. And psychologically, the sexual desires and all that, I think, is different than it is on the physical level. I'm looking forward to the day that we women can really have an honest conversation about what intimacy is for women like us. But this is just a really complex thing that I don't think a lot of studies or it hasn't been looked at closely enough. Who's to say what happens when you get into menopause? Your body goes haywire anyways. So with parts of you removed and you're not producing certain things that you're supposed to be producing. So I think it further impacts our ability to go through the different phases that we go through as women. So I'm not too far from menopause, so I guess I'll find out what happens and I'll let you guys know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's really important to note that there aren't that many studies. And I think really only with more networks like the ones that you're working with and more funding and raising more awareness with governments This is only going to, I guess, help to have more funding towards these projects that are going to be looking at the real impacts, whether it be psychological, social, physical as well. And like hormonal, as you mentioned, these different stages of a woman's life that challenging at the best of times, and this would certainly be changed if there's been certain implications In regards to, I guess, what you think needs to happen to end this practice, what do you see as a solution or, I mean, as a way forward? I think dialogues, engagement at every level from policymakers, community leaders, religious leaders, but also for those of us who are leading the conversation to to be a little bit more aware of ourselves in the language that we use. Are we being violent? Are we demonizing folks? Are we alienating folks? What are we doing? Are we putting people that are already placed in a tight box in another tighter box, especially considering the political climate that we live in? 
so it's important to consider all of these things. But I think without honest conversations, nothing gets anywhere. But also, I think take, stepping it back rather than accusing potential cutters, giving those cutters or parents who want to cut their daughters time to really learn about their own trauma. I, mm-hmm. I think that's where it lies. You've experienced this. You, as a mother, know this more than anybody else. You live with it every single day of your life. So before you do it to your daughter, take some steps back and see what, what has happened. I think that would change the direction of the conversation. Yeah, really good point. And in regards to some advice for an FGC survivor, do you have any, perhaps three things that have either helped you along with your journey or resources or just some advice for someone that may have been through this and they may not have that access and the advocacy that you've had access to? First thing is a lot of us get stuck at being angry and some of us that have gone past that point give those who are angry a hard time. So understanding that it's okay to be angry, it's okay to ask questions and bring up those hard questions with your families. And sometimes when we carry this pain with us, this trauma with us all our lives without speaking of it, that becomes a disease within itself. So it's important that we face it and express our anger and hold our parents responsible, sit them down and have these conversations with them, not to blast it to the world, but in our own privacy to do that. But secondly, also to take our well-being seriously. We are reliving some of these things all the time. Those of us who have sexual partners, it's something that comes up every day. And one thing, actually, that conversation that we're on right now is about sexuality. I think a lot of us FGC survivors have been pushed into the box of the LGBT community because we have a huge population of asexual women. So having this conversation and understanding that it's okay, it wasn't your fault, and you won't have answers or way out or a way to deal with this unless we speak it out, unless we let it known to others. So if I share my experience, hopefully it will open others to look at their own experiences, what they go through on a daily basis, and understand that, no, it's not your fault. It's not your fault that you've got pain all over your body, and fibromyalgia is a big part of this, where trauma comes up as pain throughout your body. And FGC survivor may not be able to understand this and connect it back to what has happened. So there's a lot of reasons to the things that we experience. So your well-being, listen to your body. Don't be shy in having these conversations about your body. And also, engaging your children in conversation. Lastly, like it's so important. It's something that I failed at and where my children came and asked me about it much later. And it was a much harder conversation. So finding a space as you're raising your children to be able to have these conversations because not only would they understand one what you're saving them from, especially in the case of baby girls, but also in the community when they're out and about, they talk with their friends. Having this information, it, like understanding what their mom went through, especially for girls, will help save more girls than you know. When a girl is yep. about to be taken out of the country for a vacation, because I've had this conversation with my daughter, she comes in and says, like, hey, mama, so-and-so is going to Somalia in the summer. It's like, for me, that's a tip to have a conversation with the parents mm. and share what I know. So those are some of the advices that I have. But, you know, number one, most importantly, is our well-being. 
Yeah, that's really important advice. Now, I'd just like to hear a little bit more about you've been in advocacy for women's rights, women's health since probably as young as you can remember. It's something that you've said that you can't imagine doing anything else. So what's kind of next on your agenda for these projects that you've been working on? For a long time, I've been in the field. I did working with agricultural development and creating safe spaces where women can discuss these issues. Before that, I was working with refugees and doing refugee resettlement here in the U.S. So I went from direct service to now really being invested in the well-being side of things. After two decades of working in the system, I realized that we were a bunch of broken people trying to fix a broken system. Mm. And we were traumatized already. We were dealing with our own trauma. But on a daily basis, we take in other people's trauma. So we are at the same time trying to process our own or not even sometimes not even aware of our own trauma, but we're taking in others. And it takes a toll on our bodies. So in this work, there's a huge burnout rate. And I think we don't reach the level of efficiency that we could reach if our well-being is in place. Mm. So I'm in a place right now where I would like to work towards holding funders and employers and governments and these entities that support human rights campaigns like ending FGMC putting the responsibility on them and making sure that the folks that are in the front lines are being taken care of, that their mental health and their physical health and overall wellness being paid attention to. Because seriously, if we were okay, FGC would have ended a long time ago. Mm. The first conversation on FGC started, I think it was 1950 in Cairo, in Egypt. And then it came back up again in 1979 in Sudan, where the United Nations, they signed, I don't remember exactly what the document was, but a declaration to end FGM. And then in Kenya in 1989 or 88, it was outlawed. Well, all these things, majority happened before I was born, and it still happened to me. Mm. And it's still happening to little girls today. So we're doing something wrong. And I think the root of that is the people themselves that are providing services and are the link for the community to information and resources that they need. We're, t- mm. we're tired, we're burnt out, and we're at some time, uh, you know, sometimes we're just working off of our checklist. It's like, okay, I need to get home. So let me just finish this bed and go on. And they call it martyrdom, where activists just give themselves up and just get martyred you know, for their cause, but they're not efficiently doing it because they're running on empty. So I'm hoping that we can correct that through the retreats that we run and we can host organizations, groups of activists and others through the coming years to help them really find a space for healing, but also learn some techniques that can help them help their communities better. Wow, that's a a point that I hadn't really considered in these conversations that I've been having thus far um, with the different FGMC organisations. And it's such a really important point to note that it can't just be the survivors that are campaigning this. It really needs to be the, the governments, the lawmakers, the practitioners, the healthcare providers, uh, because at the end of the day, 
they're the ones like with the resources and if the direction can be guided and treaded carefully and considered by say survivors then it's going to be able to create a conversation with these communities but the resources really lie with the practitioners and with these larger organizations absolutely yeah yeah yeah, but it's we're all people, you and all of us, just part of trying to make a change in own capacities. So yeah. I'm grateful that we are having these conversations, even though there is things that we still need to work on. Yeah. So for anyone that may be listening that would like to, that feels an urge to start campaigning or learn more about this, we've heard some of the resources with the other interviews that we've done, but from I guess, more of an insider perspective, what do you think an, a listener can do? Depending on where in the world you are, there's local resources, but a quick place to go, especially for us here in the U.S., is the mm-hmm. U.S. and FGMC network. And on the website, there's different resources in Europe and I think even to Australia and Canada. It's easier when you go to an already established network that is connected to other networks around the world. That way you can get an understanding of a bigger picture of what's going on globally. Mm-hmm. But if you happen to come from a practicing community or you're a survivor yourself, really starting the conversation from home and understanding what happened to you or what's happened to your family members and having that conversation with your family members is, I think, the best place to start. And if that proves unfruitful, then, you know, definitely reaching out to um, these networks around the world. And I think... Um, Australia may have one, not quite sure, but I, I think also Australia, even though you're new in this front, you're much further ahead than us in the U.S. because you've had a few cases that have been profiled globally. So you may have a little bit more resources than we do. But for general public, gosh, any organization that serves refugees and immigrants And I don't know if this is true in Australia, but in the U.S., if you have a fear of being put through FGMC or your child is going to be cut, if you go back to your um, country of origin, it could be a basis for seeking asylum. So being able to help those who don't have this information to know it, sharing it will be great. But just reaching out to other organizations that help women that come from um, different parts of the world that practice FGMC and also putting it out there and again Australia is one place that has made this really well known is the fact that practice is not isolated to just Africa it's a global issue and I know Australia has a huge Asian uh, population uh, being very close geographically to that part of the world so it's in the Indian Bihar communities and other communities around the world Georgia Chechnya it's all over so just understanding that it's not isolated to Africa and this is a global issue and uh, really looking at it as a women's issue not an African issue or their issue it's now an Australian issue and an American issue. Amazing thank you so much Naima for meeting with us today and just yeah sharing so much of what you went through it I can imagine that it's sometimes hard to revisit but Thank you for just sharing your story to help educate others and to really help to end FGMC around the globe. 
It is my pleasure, and I hope I stayed on point and was able to give some useful information. But I'm here. We're all here. We're here for a mission. And thank you so much for taking interest in us and making our issues important enough to highlight. Thank you. I must tell you, this series has been one of the most difficult yet important interviews I have done with the Heal Thy Skin podcast. There have been moments throughout these interviews where I felt that I was probing, speaking about taboo topics that I've really never covered before. I understand how challenging it is to learn about this practice. And the first emotion is often utter anger at those that are performing FGMC. But I truly hope that we've been able to cover this topic with the utmost respect and sensitivity towards survivors. And I really want to stress the importance that the mothers, fathers and practitioners do not commit FGMC because they wish to inflict terror and harm. If there is one thing that we can learn from these stories is that humans are complex and that ignorance and misguided information can lead to harmful practices It is not our place to judge why people do the things that they do, but it is our place to educate ourselves and raise awareness of important topics such as ending FGMC. Julia, Dr. Khan and Naima told us how important it is to work with organisations at the grassroots level. If you feel inclined to take action, then visit the show notes for details of the organisations that are working closely with communities to end FGMC in both developing and developed countries. If you choose to share just one episode of the Heal Thy Skin podcast, I urge it to be this special series. Advocates believe that if enough focus and resources is put on education and inclusion, rather than judgment and exclusion, we may just see an end to FGC in our lifetime. How amazing would that be? Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, stay skin-powered.